0: All right. Well, it is my pleasure now to introduce Kelly Whitwicky. She is the Executive Director of the Sentience Institute, a new think tank researching the most effective strategies to expand humanity's moral circle to include all sentient beings. She previously served as director of communications at Sentience Politics, which has split now into two organizations, one still with the same name, Sentience Politics, which continues to focus on political initiatives, and the other, the Sentience Institute, which she is leading. Kelly has also earned to give in the past at Google as a user experience engineer. She has co-organized a grassroots animal advocacy organization, and she has participated in farmed animal rescue and rehabilitation. To speak about expanding the moral circle, please welcome Kelly Woodwicky.
1: Thank, Thank you. Hi, everyone. You will have to excuse my voice. i am having too much fun this weekend. Um, so I am very excited to introduce to you Sentience Institute, we are a new effective altruism think tank dedicated to the expansion of humanity's moral circle. And we just launched on Friday. And some of you may know my co-founder, JC Reese, who has been around in the animal advocacy and effective animal advocacy communities for quite a few years now. So to explain the importance of moral circle inclusion and exclusion to you, um, the greatest strategies in history for the most part, have really happened because one group decided that another group, particularly a group who they had power over, that their interests were comparably just unimportant next to their own. And this is still happening today. So for instance, there are at least 100 billion non-human animals in farms right now globally, and probably around 95% of them are in factory farm conditions. So they are suffering tremendously. There are also many more wild animals, and many of them suffer in ways that the animals in this room will just never have to experience. There are also many humans who are suffering because of poverty, because of discrimination based on their physical characteristics, and because of oppressive political regimes, and for other reasons. And these are all sentient individuals who we can help, who many of us can help, and for the most part, we don't. And they suffer, because even otherwise very kind and compassionate people exclude them from our moral circles to one degree or another for one reason or another. Um, reasons like their location, their distance from us, essentially, in their location or their genome or other circumstances. Many more sentient beings may exist in the far future, And just as the vast majority of sentient beings who are alive today are excluded by those of us with the power to affect their well-being, so too may those individuals, that vastly greater number of individuals, they may be excluded by those who can affect their well-being as well. Humanity's moral circle has, in the past, made some very notable expansions, particularly in the last few hundred years, with many cultures, for instance, enabling women to vote and have substantially more control over their bodies and their lives. We've ended the, or other people, of course, not we, have ended the transatlantic slave trade, have banned coercive child labor, and have made it illegal to deny someone employment or um, a marriage certificate just on account of their sexuality. These expansions have eliminated really significant suffering from the human population, and they possibly even prevented other slave trades, other holocausts, and other horrible tragedies. And expanding this circle further to include all beings who have experiences of happiness and suffering, just to say who are sentient, um, who have morally relevant experiences, and not just those who look sufficiently like you and I or whoever is in power, could prevent substantially more suffering. So at Sentience Institute, we're not just interested in the suffering that's happening right now and trying to reduce what's happening right now, but in the longer-term goal of bringing excluded individuals into our circle so that in the longer term, they are considered as fully as possible and will ultimately therefore experience far less suffering than they will if we decide to ignore that suffering. So at Sentence Institute, we are specifically trying to determine what the most effective strategies to accomplish that expansion are, because there are a lot of ways that we can go about this. Um, One thing that we are very interested in looking in is how previous expansions have happened. And I myself am currently working on a social movement case study of the British anti-slavery movement to see what circumstances led to their success and to try to compare that to what animal advocates are doing today and what that might mean for what we should do. Uh Uh-huh. So many people in both the effective of altruism and the animal rights communities have been talking about doing this kind of social movement comparative research for quite a few years now, and um, it hasn't been really been done, and J.C. Reuss and I both think it's very important, so we just decided that somebody should just get to it. Uh, so that is what we are doing. And if you are interested in results that this has come up with so far, this is very preliminary because I have just started this project. But one really interesting insight is that anti-slavery advocates actually pursued what amounted to welfare reforms like animal advocates are today. And it looks like their attempt and failure to satisfactorily reform slavery, even in super modest ways, like just having like basic housing and food requirements and basic maximums on um, the severity of punishment that you could give It was very hard to get that through. And then when it did get through, the enforcement was left to the colonies, so nothing happened. And from accounts of activists and politicians at the time, it seems like this inability to reform the system and make it better led people to just think that it's incorrigible and we should just get rid of the whole thing. And that could have been like the turning point and the reason that they decided to just abolish the whole institution rather than to try to make some humane or happy version of slavery. So in relation to farmed animal advocacy, This information could really support um, welfare reform campaigning and could suggest maybe that we do it in different ways, maybe that we do it um, for the kinds of reforms that the public is really on board with, but that are maybe just a little too much for the industry to agree with. Um, It could have a few different implications like that. So we are also planning on running surveys to assess where people's moral circles are now, uh, and we'd really like to... Be able to run those every few years, so we can see if those if those look like they're changing and what that might be correlated with. And we'd like to run some RCTs on things like effective messaging, so comparing different um, framings of different harms with different asks. So, like the harm of you know animal agriculture is bad for the environment, or it's bad for the animals, and asks of go vegan, go reduce or donate to these organizations, or support this bill to end factory farming, or whatever it is, and to see. Um, how much support different framings and different asks get. Because a lot of the movement so far has been focusing on the consumer asks, and we think that that's probably been to the exclusion of a lot of momentum that we could instead get if we made more institutional asks, like support these organizations in getting these corporations to go cage-free or to stop factory farming or support this bill to end slaughterhouses or whatever this momentum could be put into instead. Um, JC is also writing a book on the end of animal farming, which has involved substantial research and is going to propose an evidence-based way forward for the movement against animal farming. And that will be coming out, um, we'll be finishing that this year and it will come out in December next year. So we are initially focusing on farmed animals because they face unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly severe suffering and on a scale that is really second only to that of wild animals and other individuals, probably non-human individuals, who may exist in the future. We also see efforts to eliminate animal farming as particularly tractable, and of course lots of people are also already working to ensure that our moral circle includes all humans. So per-population affected, farmed animals are extremely neglected, again second only to wild animals and other beings who may exist in the future. We've also been really excited to see very significant interest in evidence-based strategizing in the farmed animal advocacy movement, and the leaders of this movement have generally come to farmed animal advocacy through this concern for the severity and scale of this suffering, so there's already a very like effectiveness and effective altruist-focused kind of perspective in this movement. And we've also generated a lot of insight from looking at the evidence in the last few years in this community, even just kind of on our own after our day jobs without doing a concerted research effort. So we think that with a few years of a really concerted effort, we can produce a lot more actionable insight or develop a lot more confidence on what the right way to go is. Speaking of insights we have learned so far, our first publication is a summary of the evidence on all sides of some important questions in animal advocacy. So these are questions like um, whether we should pursue welfare reforms or do confrontational advocacy, Um, should we make asks of consumers or should we make those asks um, that are more political? And I really encourage you to check this out to understand um, all the sides of these questions. Because there's, you know, there can be a lot of there are lots of debates around these questions, and sometimes they just miss a lot of important points. And we really just wanted advocates to have a resource where they could go and just see what all the evidence on all sides are. And this is a resource that we are going to keep updating as we acquire new evidence and learn new arguments so that it will stay just a very fresh resource for effective altruists and animal advocates. Um, so for instance, if you're interested in some of these debates, um Welfare reform, camp- welfare reform campaigns are a very hot topic in the animal rights community. Um, these are campaigns that, for instance, convince companies to stop keeping hens in battery cages. And, you know, some of these reforms hopefully result in the animals suffering less, even though they are still suffering very intensely. Um, and, and the arguments on either side are that on the one hand, these reforms may make people feel like animal farming is good now and they may give people kind of moral license and they may give people this false sense of um, of how humane the industry is. It may amount to humane washing. But on the other side it's possible that just having messages around that these animals matter and that we should care about them will help people identify more as like you know, my culture cares about these animals and I care about these animals so that when they then learn that in a free-range farm the hens are still suffering incredibly severely, they're then more ready to take action against that than if they had never seen these messages and if the prevailing attitude in society was just that farmed animals are just there for us to use. It doesn't matter how they're treated. So this page currently presents the arguments for and against these approaches, as well as arguments that have unclear direction, um, just very generally. And we can't really paint all reform advocacy and all confrontation with the same brush, because, for instance, there could be very significant differences in the impacts of violent and nonviolent confrontational advocacy, and where that line is is unclear, um, and all of these have these kinds of details that matter for the specific situation. But this is a starting place for answering these questions. And we're gonna, uh, like I said, continue updating it so that we can make it more detailed and more thorough and just keep it up to date. You may be wondering if and how we're related to sentience politics. Um, as was just mentioned, we, uh, sentience politics was a project of the Effective Altruism Foundation. And it did effective animal advocacy research and movement building, as well as political initiatives. But it has now moved on to be an independent organization that is just focusing on the political initiatives. And we've sprung off on our own as well. And the Effective Altruism Foundation has generously given us this lovely grant to help us get started so that we can get our proof of concept out there. And we're going to carry on some of the work that we started um, at Sentience Politics when it was doing Uh, effective animal advocacy research. And while there are a few other organizations in the effective animal advocacy space, like animal charity evaluators, this need for the kind of foundational work that can produce new insights that will inform charity evaluations and other advocates and organizations' decisions is very significant. And you can look at the research agenda on our website if you're interested in the kind of research that we think needs to be done in this space. We are, of course, also working with other groups in the effective animal advocacy space to ensure that our work is as beneficial to these communities as possible and that no one's reinventing the wheel in the gray area between um, these organizations' research domains. So as a final note, we are now raising funds for a researcher, and we're going to be starting interviews when we have another $20,000 So if you think what we are doing is important, you are very welcome to support us in finding that um, researcher, and you can donate to us through a special fund, through Effective Altruism Funds, um, which you can access through the organization list or through the donate page on our own website. We're really excited about the research we're doing, and basically the sooner we can produce this research, the sooner advocates can start taking action on it, and probably the more animals we can help. Um, so we really do appreciate any help you can give us in making this work happen. Our website has more information about our perspective and our work, um, and I also have office hours after this, and you're totally free to email, email me anytime with any questions. Thank you. Thank
0: you. All right, a few minutes for questions. Everybody should know the URL by now, but just in case, it's bostonyaglobalorg slash polls. Scanning through these, a couple you just answered right uh, at the end, um, including where your funding is coming from. Um, Another question is, maybe you could give a little bit more kind of color on the, the different areas of research that you're planning to do. You sort of mentioned, like, summaries of existing research, Then there's RCTs, then there's sort of historical case studies, I mean, there's a lot there. So Mm -hmm. how are you guys kind of prioritizing that and breaking down your efforts?
1: Um, So we're working on our prioritization right now. Some of the things we want to start are that survey, because we want to be able to track like if moral circles are expanding, and we really just don't have information right now on where um, these moral circles are. And people in the animal advocacy movement have kind of been relying on like rates of vegetarians and vegans, which I don't think is... Um, necessarily the best metric to look at because like you know anecdotally like virtually everyone hates factory farming um, which is something that we could be capitalizing on so we want to do work like that. Um, JC will be spending most of his time uh, the rest of the year on his book and he's doing research privately for now um, on that though if anyone would like to volunteer um, there are lots of short research projects for that that would be awesome. For instance one of the things we'd love to do is um, a cost analysis of like what it would actually cost to have, say, a totally pasture system of animal farming, which is not necessarily to say a genuinely humane and happy system, but at least what people um, what people think of as that, and what would be like the bare minimum of plausibly being a happy system, to see how expensive that would actually be to manage globally and what scale that could be managed at, because we're really confident that that's not a um, actual alternative to factory farming right now.
0: You're obviously very focused on on animals. That sort of you know runs throughout the talk. Um, but one questioner notes that you know a lot of the same kind of questions as to what makes people change their mind and, and how does that work? How does change happen? Um, might be generalizable to a variety mm. of causes. How generalizable do you think this work is likely to be? And do you think you know the same results that hold in the animal domain will?
1: We'll work so I domains. think certainly a lot of them um, will carry over to other domains. So especially like the social movement case studies in particular, while we're going to write them with explicit comparisons to what's happening in animal advocacy, other movements could just take that half out and make their own comparisons to their own movement. Um, so yeah, that will be very generalizable. And I think... Um, Our goal of doing this social movement analysis is to see if there are trends across movements, and if there are, then those are probably going to hold for a lot of social movements, probably specifically a lot of movements against specifically things like discrimination and moral circle exclusion.
0: Another question um, basically kind of boils down to, what do you think your competitive advantage is in in doing this research? I mean, you guys obviously have set out to do something Mm -hmm. that... um, Others are doing in sort of ad hoc ways or you know, mm. in their own organizations, but what kind of gives you the confidence to say we're gonna we're gonna add something to this and this is why we want to branch out and make it our full time focus.
1: So basically, this is what uh, JC and I have both been like spending all of our free time on the last few years. This is just the specific area we've developed our expertise in. JC was involved in the effective, um, in the effective altruism community since before it had a name. And I've been involved in animal rights for a few years now. Um, and we've just both been very focused on figuring out what the most impactful, effective strategies are. And, you know, there was some, it seemed like there could have been some opportunity for other groups to take on this work, but it just wasn't happening. And we think that the sooner it happens, like, the sooner we can use it. And we are, we have developed, like, that expertise. So it just made sense for us too.
0: Um, another question, kind of getting very practical. I mean, you, you said you've been doing this for years. So, one questioner asks: How do you respond when people question the premise that animals can suffer uh, in the first place? So, mm-hmm. I don't know. This really isn't that big of a deal. Like, maybe they don't even, you know, feel pain in the first place. What's your kind of
1: response um, to that? I think usually it depends on the person and where they might be coming from. A lot of people, when they say that. Um, in my experience are saying it from a point of already being convinced that they do not feel, um and for reasons that they don't care to dig into. Um, but I mean ultimately like I know that a chicken and a fish feel for the same reason that I or not know I am confident. Um, for the same reason that I am confident that you are sentient and that everyone in this room is and the same reasons that you think that I, excuse me that you think that I am. Um, which is because we behave in very similar ways and we have very similar brain structures associated with that behavior, um, with those behaviors that are associated with our pleasurable and displeasurable experiences. So when I or a chicken or a dog are threatened, we're going to react in very similar ways. And obviously the parsimonious explanation for this um, and the one that makes sense, given our understanding of evolution and biology and genetics, um, is that they are Feeling the same thing. It doesn't make sense to say that, well, they may be doing exactly the same thing, but just because we happen to be humans and they happen to be um, some other species, like there's some more complicated explanation for that, and somehow they're just looking like they feel, but they don't, because that just doesn't make any more sense to say about a dog than it makes sense to say about someone in this room. But for all I know, you could all just be unfeeling Mm simulations, and I'm in the Matrix. (laughs) Uh,
0: Questions continue to roll in. What is your view on robot minds? Do you have a a forward-looking view on how we should be thinking
1: about that? So I don't think there's any reason to believe that um, carbon-based biological organisms are the only beings who can have um, experiences of happiness and suffering. So if I were to, um, actually if I were just to learn that any of you were a robot, that you were um, ones and zeros and silicon instead of carbon, it wouldn't change how I care about you and change how I think about you because your behavior is just as complicated as mine. You respond the same way I do, and the best explanation for that is that you are feeling the same things that I am.
0: I guess probably the last question. We're, we're kind of short on time. Um, what research in the psychological literature or the cognitive uh, <coughs> literature do you see as sort of foundational to the work that you're doing? Like, who are Who are the kind of touchstone... Uh, researchers that you're building on top of.
1: Um, so I see when you say the cognitive, the cognitive literature, whoever asked that is talking about like, um, understandings of sentience. Um, that's not what we're doing. We're starting from agreement that, um, all individuals, um, all, all animals are, um, are sentient, do have these experiences. We're not, um, trying to prove that any more than we're trying to prove that women have the same experiences of fear and suffering that men do. Um, We're just starting with that as given for the reasons that I expressed. Um, So there isn't really any cognitive work going into the effective animal advocacy research that we're trying to do. This is mostly um, psychology research, sociology, um, and it's RCTs that we're going to try to run ourselves. A lot of it is also right now just our own experiences, what we've heard from other people um, about like what's made them animal advocates and things like that.
0: Great. Finally, in addition to, obviously, money, uh, what else can the community do to support your efforts?
1: Oh, um, well, there are a few things. If you want to support us directly, we're, we would totally love to have volunteers in our research network. Um, so we maintain this network so that people who are interested in doing maybe just a little bit of research on these topics um, can help us out and can connect, and you can sign up for that on our website. Um, also, I just think it's really important to inform yourselves of, like, the arguments on all sides of these approaches. So, like, go read the effective, um, sorry, the summaries for foundational questions page and familiarize yourself with that work so that you can like have more thorough conversations with people about the kind of work we should be doing. And of course, you know, keep talking about animals in the serious terms that they should be spoken about.
0: Kelly Witwicky, expanding the circle. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.